This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for September 22nd, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, what would it take to reduce the massive levels of cartel violence in Mexico? Mathematician Rafael Prieto Curiel created a model to study the cartel population and activities and determined the best way to reduce violence is to cut back on their recruitment. I spoke with Rafael and also Lisa Sanchez, executive director at Mexico United Against Crime, about the paper and the many steps between a mathematical model and the real world. After that, we hear from our books team about what to watch, read, play, and visit this fall. Books editor Valerie Thompson and books intern Jamie Dickman join me to discuss their top picks from a board game about domesticating foxes to a gargantuan new Egyptology museum set to open soon. This week in science, Rafael Prieto Curiel and colleagues wrote a paper on the inputs and outputs of cartels in Mexico. They use math that could be applied to many other things with inflows and outflows to try to estimate the cartel size and to figure out the best way to reduce violence. While Rafael focused on math and modeling when we talked, I also spoke with Lisa Sanchez. She's the executive director at Mexico United Against Crime. And we talked about how even what we're learning from the modeling from this paper, there are still really big hurdles to be faced trying to extricate cartels from Mexico. Hi, Rafael. Thank you so much for coming. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hello, Sarah. Nice to meet you. First, I just want to talk about what it's like to use math to look at social problems, social, structural, countrywide, nationwide. How has it been, you know, using math to solve or to think about these problems? Maybe I should start by saying that I'm a mathematician. And after I finished my degree in mathematics, I worked for the police in Mexico City for five years. So for me, the way to analyze crime or patterns or crashes or anything is with math. That's the tool I learned how to use in school. So then 
many years later, I'm still with that tool in my backpack. And every problem that I see, I want to put the math behind it and try to analyze it. So the big picture here for the paper is the focus is on reducing violence from cartels in Mexico and looking at how to quantify all the inputs and outputs that may increase or decrease this violence. And then see which of these things might be a good lever. Does that does that sound right? Yes, exactly. How did you decide to tackle this problem? What attracted you about it? What caught your attention? I've been living in Mexico for many years. I hear many politicians and many political parties trying to have a different strategy for crime. But not only that, a different explanation for why things are happening. And these explanations often are no worries. Is one cartel is fighting another cartel. However, after many years of this cartel versus cartel, we would expect less violence, less murders, less of this. But I just observed more. In the past 15 years, Mexico is just getting more violent. So that idea that it's just, no worry, it's a cartel fighting another cartel just doesn't work. Or there is another mechanism behind that is driving these extremely high waves of violence in my country. And that is the mathematics I wanted to explore in this project. There's lots of people who are caught up in the crime that these organizations are committing. So it's definitely not only people involved in crime that are suffering. Wasn't that a problem with, you know, saying, oh, cartel and cartel violence will solve it all? Definitely. What do you consider a cartel? When are murders related to the cartel? When is this data actually cartel versus cartel? And what about the rest of the murders? But my explanation is that precisely that is the sort of challenges that complexity science tries to explain. So complexity science is this new sort of way of observing things that is somewhere in between physics, mathematics, data science, computer science. And it tries to explain things that often we cannot observe or not understand with the traditional sort of linear explanations. For instance, more police means less crime. Well, that is very linear way of thinking. If you put more police officers in one corner, then you should have less criminals in that corner. However, we don't often observe that. Therefore, that explanation that if you put more police officers, you will have less crime doesn't work. Similarly, instead of two years in prison, you're going to spend five years in prison if you do this. Is that going to decrease crime? Well, no. And it doesn't decrease crime precisely because what we have is a nonlinear process, a complex process. Right. So you, you want to do this statistical analysis, this math, but how do you access the numbers that you need here? I mean, it's not like you can take a census and ask people, are you in a cartel? Did you know somebody that was killed by the cartel? Like, how do you find out the size of the problem, the size of the cartels, the crimes they're committing? Exactly. Bingo. That you, you point out the biggest challenge that we had in our research. How do you actually find these data? So I didn't. What we do is first we take the data that we can observe. And what I can observe is the number of homicides and the number of arrests in Mexico every week for the past 10 years. So we have a time series there that is very good. And we also have some data for the number of active cartels in Mexico, but it's just how many cartels there are, who is fighting who. So there's a bit of a network there. And the rest is basically very obscure. That means we don't know. If you have, I don't know, 100 kills today, how many of them are you going to say that were related to the cartel? And how many are related to anything else? Mm -hmm. Well, that is precisely why a complex approach to this problem is quite interesting. 
because what we do is we take what happens if I take only five of those murders as related to cartels. Then what happens if I take six and what happens if I take seven or eight or nine or ten? And I vary the number from a wide range of values from very small to very large as a parameter of the model. So I take these values and I vary them as parameters of the model, from very small numbers to very large numbers. Assuming that reality is somewhere there, but I just cannot observe it. Similarly with missing people, similarly with arrests, because, okay, we arrest a lot of people, but we know that many of the people are arrested for petty crimes, like for shoplifting something for stealing a wallet, but that is not a cartel. Cartels are the really violent individuals in Mexico. But how many of the people in prison are for a, for a cartel? Well, we don't know. Yeah. So let's take a small number and a big number and vary those numbers. We will never know reality inside, but let's try to observe everything and see how will things change if instead of four murders related to crime, we have five or six or seven. It's kind of like a probability cloud, right? You know the, the maximum size of the cloud, the minimum size of the cloud, and then you can exactly you can say, okay, well, when we then vary something else, what is the effect on the cloud instead of what is the effect on a singular value? Is that what you mean? Exactly. We have 150 active cartels, according to the data that we have at hand. They have to produce a certain number of homicides. That is a percentage of the ones that we observed in Mexico for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then it's basically like observing a black box. You don't know what is inside. We don't know how these cartels are behaving, what size they have, what recruitment they process, etc. But what we can tell is that their size has to be increasing in the past 10 years because the murders they produce has been also increasing in the past 10 years. So you do come out with some numbers here. In your paper, you estimate how many people are involved in cartels in any one year. Yes. What was that number? And, and did that surprise you? Oof, it surprised me, but it also shocked me. It moved me. Like, you know, science is not only an object that is there behind individuals, but there is also a person on the other side observing their country and their reality and the prospects of the next years. And it actually depressed me a bit, the results of this project. Because yes, we observe this black box and the results are that this black box should have inside between 160,000 and 185,000 individuals. That means that cartels are today the fifth largest employer in the country. Wow. They are also the number one recruiter in the country because they recruit a lot of individuals every single week just to keep up with this violent wave that we have in the country. And they're recruiting because their members are lost to prison and to murder every week, too. Exactly. Yeah. The prospects of this cartel career are extremely sad. Imagine that a person that gets recruited by the cartel within 10 years is expected to either be in prison with a 20% probability or be dead with a 17% probability. So you're joining a mafia where basically only 60% of the people will survive in the next 10 years. But most of them are young. Most of them are teenagers between 14 and 17 being recruited and knowing that in 10 years, half of them will end up either dead or in prison. Oof, it's a massacre in my country. Yeah, absolutely. We talked a little bit about the size and recruitment and how people are getting taken out of circulation. 
What else did you try to understand about this black box in, in your study? How can we change it? Mm. That's for me the aim, because science should also help us solve things, live better, become more efficient police department, right? So how can we change it? Because mathematics is extremely powerful. You can take this black box, take all these equations, all these X's and Y's and values, and then we try to push them for like five years. So how is the country going to look like in 2027? Now with those equations, because we have all the values, we can actually say that the violence in the country, if we carry on exactly as we're doing today, is going to increase by like 25%. Increase Mexico, that is already extremely violent. We're going to have 25% more violence if we don't change something. So what can, what can we change? Yeah. Just to pause there for a second, when we were talking about the violence in Mexico, you say in your paper, more than 100,000 people have died in the past 10 years from this. It is extreme, extremely dangerous for people in the cartels and for people around them. And to increase that by 25 percent, it's just it's just stunning. It's stunning, right? Yeah. So what can we do? That is when the research has some interesting results. Let's say we double the efforts of the police. That means we double the number of police officers in the streets, the number of judges, the number of prison spaces, the number of everything, and also the cost and the investment. And how is Mexico going to look like in five years if we double everything in the security system? We're going to have 8% more murders than we have today, even if we double everything. That means this is a no way. This is not going to actually reduce the problem, you see? Even if we put more and more and more police, just because cartels are already so big, so many members recruiting so much people, even if we double the police, is not enough. So what can we do? Okay, let's focus on recruitment. Recruitment is what cartels are doing today. Now we're going to go to the flip side. Instead of increasing policing or incarceration, jail time, we're going to talk about decreasing recruitment. This is about how and why people get involved in cartels and cartel violence. For this, we're actually going to bring in Lisa Sanchez as well. As I mentioned earlier, she is the executive director at Mexico United Against Crime, and she looked at this paper early on and gave some advice on including disappeared people in the data set used in the model, which is also on the rise in Mexico. Lisa has worked in this space for a decade and has some insights on how they recruit and how they fit in with Mexico today. So one of the particulars that Mexico has to contend with is how integrated cartels are into so many aspects of society. That helps with recruitment, and it also helps them maintain their grip on who they have. How do you see that going away? It's very difficult because it's also very different from zone to zone. Like, there are regional disparities that are important to take into account. So in some places, the grip of the cartels are more related to power and the respect the communities actually show for the people that have the guns and the money. Reputation is very important, but it's also one of the extreme forms of sociability, particularly for adolescents and kids whose um, families are not necessarily a good structure for socializing or schools, for example. Like the traditional institutions are not necessarily working. And that's one of the dimensions this particular phenomena can take, but there's also different ones in rural areas. For example, it's forced recruitment. It has nothing to do with reputation. It has nothing to do with access to social networks. It has to do with 
cartels basically needing people and getting into communities and taking these kids away uh, in a forced manner, what they call leva in Spanish. And that also needs to be addressed in a different way because it has nothing to do with like the cultural aspirations of some particular groups. One of the scenarios that we explored, okay, we can double the number of police officers and that doesn't work. Let's try to have the recruitment. And if we have the recruitment that we have today from Mexico, we're going to have in five years around 30% less murders than we have today. That's a big difference. So, okay, reducing the recruitment works slightly more, is more effective than increasing the number of police officers. What does it mean to reduce recruitment, though? I mean, we just did it in the model. This number is different, but you talked about recruitment as, you know, threatening people, forcing people. You know, how do you stop that? That's a challenge, right? How do we actually reduce recruitment? Well, I, how do we convince these teenagers that joining a cartel means that chances are that in 10 years they will be either in prison or death? It means going back to the rural communities, going to the medium-sized cities and focusing on the people that are more vulnerable to join a cartel. That is what we have to fight today. So, Lisa, the model is telling us this, this specific thing. Recruitment could be the key to reducing cartel violence in Mexico. But, you know, what does it take to reduce recruitment when there are just so many people involved in cartels? Not specifically to Mexico, but I think that we can definitely look at and learn from different experiences in the world on demobilizing particularly young people that are already participating in cartel activities or even in related violence or criminal activity. There's also some interventions that we can actually learn from on the peacekeeping and peacebuilding operations in other particular zones in conflict. There's also social prevention violence, that it's something that the government right now is trying to do by, you know, increasing direct transfers to specific populations, including young people. But I think that Mexico, because all of the particularities that the conflict in Mexico involved, will actually need to build a model of what does that mean. You do need to increase social spending and you need to recompose the social fabric, yes, but you also need very specific interventions on demobilizing people in particular and disarming people as well, because that will be also an important component of what to do to actually reach the results that this paper is finding, which I think are more promising than just continuing doing the same. The answer is not increasing conflict as we have been doing for the past two decades. And we wish it was about policing. It's all about stopping them from being such a prolific job provider for people in Mexico and such, a, such an effective recruiter. And also, what are the activities in particular that these organizations are conducting? Because there's not only drug trafficking, it's all sort of illegal economies. And to actually effectively tackle these particular economies, you also need to address the elephant in the room, which is the participation of political actors in Mexico, either government or political actors that are aware or that are actively involved in these activities and that are allowing these criminal organizations to grow and to continue recruiting people to continue conducting their businesses. 
So you're talking about corruption and people in government being linked with cartels, making it really difficult to stop cartels. Exactly. This is what we are calling in Mexico macro-criminality. It's all the networks that you actually need to put in place that include government officials and political actors with political power in order to conduct illicit activities at this scale. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was very interesting to talk to you. Even with the direction that we're getting here from the model, it does sound like there's still a long way to go for Mexico to get rid of cartels. Let's say that for some magic reason, we can stop every single cartel today from recruiting any single teenager from now onwards. Still, by 2027, we're going to have a huge amount of murders because cartels are already so big and they already have such a big structure fighting with each other for the space, for resources, for finance, for being the ones that push drugs into the U.S. That still in 2027, even if a ferry came and they reduced recruitment to zero, we would still be in one of the most violent countries in the world. And that is a challenge, you see? Yeah. Even in the best case scenario, I wouldn't be able to solve this very big social cancer that we have in the next five years. Yeah. That's a challenge. Before we wrap up, Rafael, is there anything you want to add about the modeling or the paper or your experience with this? I want to acknowledge first the collaboration with my colleagues, Jan uh, Maria and Alejandro but also to remember our colleague Alejandro Hope. He was our master and our guidance. And unfortunately, he passed away a few months before the publication of our article. It doesn't matter who we talk to in Mexico. Everybody has been extremely moved about this, about the passing away from Alejandro. He instructed a new generation of us, crime scientists and analysts, or people dealing with crime and models, so we miss him a lot, and that's part of our research, trying to bring back some of the learnings that we had from Alejandro and put them in the, into this article. So it's been, you know, challenging to finish this article without him on board. But yeah, I, I, I again want to say thank you to Alejandro for all the knowledge that he passed to us. Rafael, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much, Sarah, for the interview, and thank you to the listeners. Rafael Prieto Correal is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Complexity Science Hub in Vienna. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a roundup of fall media. We're talking books, video games, movies, and more. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today.
Today we have science books editor Valerie Thompson and editorial intern Jamie Dickman, who put together a huge selection of fall books, I guess, media, a lot of things. What's the theme here, Valerie? Yeah, so we've always done a big fall review roundup of books. Traditionally, it's eight to 10 books, but I've always wanted to do more. I thought, you know, this year, if I can get an intern, we could do something a little special. And so this year, in addition to eight book reviews, we also have previews of five museum exhibitions, two games, two films, and two streaming series. The topics are just kind of all over the place. It's, you know, computer vision and creativity and prehistoric ideas about women and public health issues. It's, it's kind of all over the place. Yeah. And this is all thanks to Jamie, who is here with us as well. Hi, Jamie. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I am really excited to see such a wide array of formats as well as topics. I think we should do books last. Save the best for last. Yes. And also, some of these things are not out yet or available yet, but this is a good time to put things on your calendar, maybe consider them for presents for the books, games, movies, or exhibition lovers in your life. So Jamie, let's start with games because that's something I'm really excited about. So yeah. What was one of the games that you featured in, the, in these reviews? My top pick is The Fox Experiment, which is a board game designed by Elizabeth Hargrave and Jeff Fraser. Basically, it's based on the Siberian Fox Experiment that was started in 1959 and is ongoing till this day. The point of it was to domesticate foxes like we did dogs to see if we could and how it would turn out. Ultimately, they ended up with a very specific breed of very friendly and social foxes that had the byproducts of domestication, pearly tails, floppy ears, and spots. And it'll be released in the next few months. These are the folks from Wingspan, right? Which is a board game that I think we had in our pages and I absolutely love. I even have an expansion for that one. Yeah. So Elizabeth Hargrave is the creator of, of Wingspan, which is a, a very celebrated board game. And so when we saw that she was coming out with another one, of course, we wanted to feature that in this year's roundup. Yeah. So Wingspan has these little eggs that you get, that you get to move around. So I'm wondering what precious little object I will get to touch if I get this box game. Oh my goodness. There is like, it's very complex. There are many moving parts and there are many tiny, adorable little fox features that you will get to interact with. It really simulates the actual fox domestication process where you pick two parents and then you'll roll dice to see which traits their offspring get. And ultimately at the end, you earn points for how successfully you domesticate your foxes and what traits they have. Very cool. So if they bite you, no points. <laughs> yeah, if you get snake eyes, uh, I think you're out of luck there. Friendly foxes only. Okay. All right, Valerie, now you have a different kind of game that you're going to share with us. Yeah, so this game I'm going to talk about is Starfield. This is a very highly anticipated open-world role-playing video game. Um, it's from the folks who made Skyrim and Fallout 4. The premise is that it's the year 2330, and you're about to join this group of space explorers as part of this mission to find rare artifacts throughout the galaxy. It's like a very immersive game. There's over a thousand planets you can explore. And there's at least one quest that involves kind of exploring what happened to Earth in the 300 years that have elapsed between now and when the game opens. So what makes it science-y? Yeah, its primary goal is not education. And so, of course, there's going to be elements that are more fun than fact-based, but it, it still plays around with some real elements of space exploration and colonization. So things like different gravities and different atmospheric phenomena 
that we know occur on other planets. And the game's aesthetic is very intentionally inspired by past and present shuttle technology. So it is ultimately fun, but there are some scientific elements in there that I think it's worth. I think will be of interest to our readers. I wish it was coming to one of my preferred platforms, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think this is Xbox only and and PC. Yeah. So we're going to move on from games now. What about movies? I'm still thinking about Fire of Love, which is a film that we discussed, I think, last time you were on, Valerie. Mm, So good. Yeah. Valerie, what did you pick for the fall roundup this year? Yes, we have a, a couple of different films. And the one I wanted to talk about today is a film called Pain Hustlers. So this is based on journalist Evan Hughes' 2022 book, The Hard Sell, which documented the rise and fall of the startup called Insys Therapeutics. The company employed some ultimately very unethical sales practices to sell their highly potent fentanyl spray. And this eventually led to criminal racketeering convictions for seven executives and employees at that company. Wow. This is a kind of dramatized version of that story. So Emily Blunt plays a single parent who is struggling to make ends meet when she lands this job as a pharmaceutical sales rep. Things are great for a while, and then she's ultimately forced to confront the company's unethical practices. Super interesting. Is that out already? That will be out at the end of October, October 27th on Netflix. Okay. All right, Jamie, what did you pick for film? It's called Life on Our Planet, and it'll be releasing on October 25th on Netflix. There's this documentary of the same name by David Attenborough in 2020. So if you Google it, don't be confused. It traces life's history from the very beginning, from the first cell to the modern era. And one of the things I'm most excited about is that Morgan Freeman is narrating it. So you get to hear his smooth voice throughout the documentary. And it's also executively produced by Steven Spielberg. So I think that's a big green flag. (laughs) We could all use a primer on the history of the entire planet and life on it, I think. Exactly. It gets a little confusing. You know what? If you're going to have one, I want it to be narrated by Morgan Freeman. So exactly. One thing really caught my eye about the section this year was that you have a lot of coverage of exhibitions, like places you can go and interact and learn about science and the world and history. So who wants to go first with their pick for an exhibition? I can go first. The one that I wanted to talk about today is called Turn It Up, The Power of Music. It was previously at Manchester Science and Industry Museum. It's moving to the Science Museum in London this fall. They have this kind of musical playground where visitors can play around with different elements like beat and harmony and pitch and tempo. There's this in-depth exploration of how music affects our emotions, how it can be used to manipulate our behavior. There's even kind of exhibits that look at how AI is being deployed in this space. So looking at things like virtual instruments that are designed to make music making more accessible. And then they just have some kind of fun stuff. Like they have this thing called a pyrophone, which is an organ powered by flames. I think for for no other reason, check that out. And so is that opening soon? Is that what you said? Yes, that is opening on October 19th. And it will actually be at the Science Museum in London through May of next year. Oh, that's great. So Jamie, where exactly is the exhibit that you want to share? Yeah, so mine isn't just an exhibit, but an entire museum that's opening. And that is the Grand Egyptian Museum in Cairo. It's expected to open between November of this year and next February. It's not set yet, but when it does, it will be the largest archaeological museum in the world. 
And so it's going to be a massive museum. There is a huge statue of Ramses II in the opening hall, along with other statues and victory columns. There's an indoor obelisk that is suspended in midair called the Hang Obelisk, and that is to protect it from vibrations caused by outside traffic. It has two whole halls dedicated to King Tut. I've seen some photos in the press release, and I have to say for any Egyptology fans out there, if you ever go to Cairo, it's a must-see. The opening has been delayed a number of times and potentially could be delayed again, but I think it's imminent that it will be fully open. And I think that for that reason, we're kind of excited to talk about it. It was originally supposed to open in uh, 2018, so it's very highly anticipated. And speaking of highly anticipated, it's time for books. Okay, Valerie, you said you covered eight books. I asked you to bring one to discuss on the show. So what do you have for us? <laughs> yes, you know, books are my bread and butter. So I, I like when we get to the book section. So the one I wanted to talk about is a book called Your Face Belongs to Us, A Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It. Oh, that sounds damning just on its face. Oh, you know, like I love books like this. It's it's absolutely chilling. It's dystopian. It's written by um, New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill, and it traces the rise of this company called Clearview AI. And they touted in 2019 that they could identify anyone from just one snapshot of their face with 99% accuracy. And by all accounts, they seem to be able to do it. Oh, my goodness. Now, is the name of this a play on words from a meme from the 90s? I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with that meme. You guys don't know all your base belong to us. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. Just go on. That is super chilling and super dystopian, but it's also true, right? This is nonfiction. This is happening. So the company was kind of operating under the radar until January 2020. And that's when Hill first published a story in the New York Times about them. They have over 3,000 active users, and it's a lot of organizations you'd expect, you know, like law enforcement, but it's also things like universities and banks and grocery store chains, and they're using it for things beyond identifying criminal actors. They've pitched their services for things like contact tracing purposes during COVID, and they offered it to the Ukraine Ministry of Defense for the purpose of revealing undercover Russian assailants and identifying the debt. It's very interesting because the companies that you would think would be potentially interested in this, Google, YouTube, Facebook, they all sent cease and desist letters after it was revealed that their platforms were being scraped for this information. Very interesting and troubling technology, but it's explored in, in great depth in this book. And that's coming out this fall. Okay, Jamie, last but not least, the book that you're going to share with us. Yeah, of course, I'm partial to the book that I wrote a, re a review for. It's called Ignition by Amara O'Connor. It's coming out October 17th. It all starts when she's in Australia while working on another book, and she comes across a totally black and charred savanna, and she approaches a local with concern, like, hey, I'm so sorry for like whatever wildfire just swept through here. And he was confused and he was like, what are you talking about? He says something along the lines of black and ground is a blessing. And then this starts her journey where she investigates people's relationship with fire and the relationship to their, to their land as well. She ultimately discovers that the massive wildfires that we have here in America are not natural and climate change is only one part of the problem. A large majority of U.S. land is actually fire dependent and our ecosystems are as well. Normally, fires would only burn a few feet off the ground and it'd be renewing for the land. And she tells this story through the people who are working to fight the fires or even restore fire to our landscape. 
this was a really interesting one because we think about fire prevention and that's just such a narrow scope of how we should be thinking about fire because like Jamie was saying, like natural fire cycles are part of these ecosystems or should be or have been in the past. And it's actually the fact that we are preventing the natural fire cycles from happening that is part of the problem. It's kind of an interesting perspective that I think more and more people are beginning to appreciate, but is really articulated well in this book. That sounds fascinating. Thanks so much to both of you. And of course, there is going to be even more in this section. So check that out. We'll have a link in the show notes at science.org slash podcast. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Valerie. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.